Our text tonight is in Luke chapter 8. I would like to read through that tonight and then we'll get into the exegesis of the of that part. It's a, so we have all the context of what we're going through. So if you would follow along at Luke chapter 8, the verse we left off in the scripture reading, we'll start there. Verse 26. And then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and it kept him under guard and bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Now a herd of of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told the city in, uh, in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for him. Father, as we open your word tonight, we pray that you would guide us, give us uh, spiritual insights. Lord, we pray that you would show us what you want each of us to learn from this and We pray that we would act upon it, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word as well. So we ask your blessings as we study now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight, we're going to look into this encounter with this, uh, the demoniac, I think is what it's called. And I'll elaborate as we go through on that, because there's a lot of misinformation about spiritual warfare. And tonight, I hope to speak a little bit about spiritual warfare, but that's not the main topic. In fact, I think there's more important parts of the story that we miss because we focus on that encounter. But because it's there, we also can't ignore it, so I don't want to skip over that either. And there are lots of doctrinal conversations and opinions and books about demons, and consequently, there's lots of thoughts and ideas. Unfortunately, some of the stuff that is in the church today is not biblical and it's not healthy. Some is outright heresy. So to teach on this passage and not to mention that is to do a disservice. So things like, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Another crucial questions, you know, float around the church today, often based on experience. How do we determine what is truth or right or wrong about this critical subject? 
So I hope to lay some groundwork for that tonight as well. And I do hope that you all understand and believe and know that there's spiritual warfare going on around us, and it's real. The Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul warns us, and, and we have glimpses in Scripture of, of like a veil being opened and we see into the spiritual realm at times. Daniel chapter 10 gives us this window into this uh, particular incident. You know, we have this angel who was sent to Daniel to deliver a message, and he is delayed or prevented by another powerful, more powerful angel than him, the prince of Persia, and the archangel Michael intervenes so that this messenger can get to Daniel. So we know that there is spiritual warfare going on. And it's important to remember that our, our enemies are not our political adversaries. They're not presidents, they're not governors, they're not friends or co-workers. The spiritual reality behind those people is the spiritual thing, the spiritual principalities. That's our battle, those who govern them. And truthfully, there's a lot out there about spiritual warfare on teachings and books and websites. Some of it, frankly, is just garbage. So hope we take a chance to, like I said, we'll go through some of that as we go on. But even more important to me in this message is what Jesus does, what Jesus says, what Jesus, how he approaches this. So let's get into the text. Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. So they're going across the sea, and um, we, we're reminded here that Jesus said, he told the disciples, we're going to go into the boat, and we're going to go across the water. We're going to go across the other side. He did not say, let's get in the boat, and we're going to drown in the middle. And of course, that's the encounter that the disciples have just come from. And if they had carefully listened to his words, they would know the plan was to cross because they had an appointment that he was going to keep. He had a mission. He had an appointment. And I think we can say with some certainty that whatever, um, we are invincible until we have completed all the work the Lord has for us. All of those, those appointments, all of those conversations, all of those things that God has for us, they will get done through us. And so we're invincible until that time is done. Or in other words, God will accomplish his plan for us, through us, despite the circumstances that come upon us. In fact, often the circumstances that come upon us and around us are there for us. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4 verse 13 that, that his illness is what God used to bring him to the Galatians to preach to the Galatians. Many of them got saved and he planted a church. God used his illness to bring him there. So no matter what's happening around and through us and to us, the reality is we just need to trust the Lord. Look for him working in our lives and what's going on there and be present in the moment. Now, I say that not as someone who has arrived and that I totally get that and understand it in every circumstance. I don't want to be a hypocrite. But the truth is I know it's true. And we need to walk in truth. 
So they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, the Gospels give different names to this location. Matthew 8 refers to this, uh, the Gadarenes. Mark and Luke call this the Gerasenes. This location had a small village associated with it, Gerasa. Uh, there's also a, a larger town further away and more well-known. It's Gadara. But we know, the only, we know the location where this is because there's only one place where there's a cliff. And we're going to see the role that that plays in a few verses where Jesus puts to test that great philosophical question, can pigs fly? (laughs) And verse 27, and when he stepped out onto the land, there he met a certain man from the city. What appeals to me about this sentence and what really struck me and the thing that I could not get out of my head is it says there met him a certain man from the city. To Jesus, this was not the demon-possessed crazy person who lived in the tombs. It was a man. Jesus met a man. Jesus always sees individuals. He speaks to individuals. Every encounter that we have in life is with somebody that Jesus loves, that he cares about. To the world, to the people in the city, this was the crazy guy. This was the demoniac. We know him. And we can fall prey to that. We can see people as the drunk, the drug addict, the gay guy the confused trans person who's struggling in their fallen state with who they are or what they are or whatever. And we like to label people. Labels make us feel good. We can miss individuals and treat someone as part of a group, and then we can become impersonal. They take on a characteristic of a group If someone were to say, the church in Orlando, you might think, oh, we all think exactly the same. But I know a lot of you. We disagree on a a lot of stuff. I mean, we agree on the essentials, hopefully. But we're individuals. We're not this monolithic thing. We can lump people together and say things like, I hate Trump supporters. I hate Democrats. I hate homosexuals. As if... First of all, that that's really a Christian value. But also, what about the individuals? They're people that Jesus loves and Jesus died for. By labeling people, we can ignore individuality. We can ignore people. Subtle differences, things that we might have in common. People that we might have considered friends given different circumstances. And we can lose sight of the person that Jesus loved and died for. Years ago, we were in another building, and I was an usher. I, I think I'm an usher for life. I've been an usher, I think, since we started. But it's funny because things come to me immediately I, when I see a group of people. I'm looking for people that have Velcro wallets that you know they're going to open during the service, or the phone they forget to turn off, or the fussy child that when the, the mom says, oh, that's okay, my, my daughter or my son will be, they'll be very you know, quiet. I just know I'm going to be asking that woman to leave the service. And I'll be the guy that, that guy, yeah. But this family came in late. 
And I, they, they, we had the back row open, so I set them in the back row. And a couple minutes later, a woman came in, someone who had been before. She lived in a shed behind the house near the church. And the details of her life were a sad story. She was a drunk. Now, most people knew her as the crazy drunk lady. That morning, you could smell alcohol on her. She also smelled because she only got one shower that week. It was on a Wednesday. This was Sunday. It's Florida. This was the summer. And she entered aware of her condition and her status, and she asked if she could sit in the back. So I sat her at the only open spot, was which at, at the end of that row where this, I had set this family. You know, a few feet away, several feet away, but in the same row. Now, the message had already begun. She leaned over to ask one of them if they could pass her a Bible because we had slots with Bibles in the pews. That was it. The father got up, slammed his Bible, got the family up, and they walked out. I followed them and asked if everything was okay, but I've been doing this for a long time. I, I knew it was up. The comment the father made to me as he walked out was, how could you let that drunk in here? We'll never be back. The woman stayed through the whole service, but as the service ended, she got up before everyone else so she could get out kind of discreetly. She sneaked out, and as she passed by me, she said, I'm sorry. She told me that she had to sleep outside the night before because she got locked out of the house. She meant shed, because she lived in a shed behind the house. But she knew she needed to be at church. Now, it's easy to judge the family, and I don't want to do that. I, I don't know their circumstances. They may have been here on vacation. They may have just had an argument in the car. I don't know. But I did know the drunk. Her name was Terry. She'd been a legal secretary in a law firm in Orlando. She had moved up to paralegal. She held an elected office in the city of Orlando somewhere. I don't remember what it was, but she actually held an office. One day she was raped by one of the lawyers. She went to the partners. They offered her money. She didn't take it. She went to the authorities. They didn't believe her. Her friends shunned her. She found herself without a job. Nobody wanted to hire her. She lost her fancy apartment. Alone, depressed, damaged, she crawled into a bottle. And by the time we had met her, she'd lived in the bottle for 20 years. There are a lot of Terry's out there. Most people saw her as the drunk. I know I did. I saw her as the drunk, the person who, as an usher, I was very concerned that she might make some kind of disturbance, turn some people off, be loud during the service, say something inappropriate. I don't know. But she attended our church off and on for a couple of years. So I got to know her. Jesus saw the man. And we need to do that. We should too. And when he stepped out on land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. Now in Matthew's gospel, 
chapter 8, verse 28, it says two men. Luke and Mark focus on the personal interaction. In Matthew 8, 33, it implies that both were delivered. Luke here is focusing on one of them. Sixteen times in the Bible and the New Testament, people are described as having a demon or an evil spirit. Thirteen times we read the demon possession or demoniac, the word daimonizomai is the word there. It's several times it, it, it says unclean spirits, same use of the word. In Acts fifteen sixteen, it says afflicted with unclean spirits. The indication in every case is that an individual was indwelt, controlled, tormented by the demon, and it was always negative. The phrase is entered him, Luke 8.30, cast out, 8.16, Mark 1.34, and other places, came out in uh, Matthew 8.32, come out, Mark 5.8, give us a clear indication that these demonic entities indwelt people, they indwelt individuals. Now, some clarification here. Demon possession cannot be described as merely psychological or physical. It's a spiritual phenomenon, often with visual or observable characteristics. I could not find any place in the Bible where demon possession was associated with a particular sin. I find no reference of any forgiveness of sin associated with being possessed. You weren't forgiven if the demon was cast out of you. You were healed. There's no reference of repentance or belief, though that probably happened. We don't read of demon-possessed or demon-possession being tied to particularly sinful people or wicked individuals. What we do read is that Jesus had absolute power over demons. They always obeyed. He was always in control. There was never a struggle. He had complete control over them. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of the work that Jesus did on the cross, it says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. One of my favorite verses. It is over. The battle is over. He has all authority. What these demons are, there is some speculation. It it appears in Scripture that angels can appear as men. Hebrews 13.2 tells us that some have entertained angels unaware. They didn't look like anybody else. We entertained strangers, and they turned out to be angels. The men who visited Abraham, Genesis 18, appeared to be men. The angels that delivered Lot appeared to be men. The men of the town thought they were good-looking men. So they all are described with bodies. Who or what these beings are is not really stated. Could this be from the flood, the Nephilim, or the Nephilim? Somehow, these entities lost their bodies and are searching for human bodies to find a residence, to live there. That's what we know. Going on. So, he, and it, he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. Now, I am sure he did not choose to live this way. This was not his choice. He was not intentionally the first streaker or nudist. That was something done against his will. 
nakedness has been something that is associated always with shame. We read of the fall, Genesis 3, 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Before that, there was no shame, but after the fall, there was shame. Jesus writes to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, that white garments that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And what your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Public nakedness is shameful. It's embarrassing. In modesty, we cover body parts. He lived in the tombs, probably not allowed in the city. Who wants a naked, demon-possessed, crazy guy going through the city? Nakedness exposed him to the extremities of the elements. Mark chapter 5 reveals that he cut himself on the rocks. If you skip ahead to verse 29, Uh, It says, for it had often seized him, the demon, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. They chained him and kept him under guard, and he broke the chains. Mark 5 tells us that no one could subdue him. He had superhuman strength. He's not the guy you want living next door. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out. He fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus and his entourage of disciples come on shore. They leave the boat, and they met a man. They were probably still wet from the storm. The last things that was recorded of the disciples, it's verse 25, and they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The demon or demons answer their question. Who can this be? What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demon's theology is correct. Every demon knows who Jesus is. And they believe in him. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that there is one God, and you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Demons know. Putting your faith in Christ is more than just believing in who he is. There's, it involves repentance. And it, asks, it involves asking for forgiveness and making him Lord. That's what a demon won't do. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. There are some key words and thoughts here. Jesus asked 
him. The Greek there is clear. It's a singular. Jesus was speaking to the man, talking to the man, and the demon answered, Legion. He's not asking the demon's name. He's asking the man's name. He's talking to the man. The demons or a spokesperson for the demons answers. Legion, if referring to a Roman legion, uh, is as many as 6,000. We don't know how many entered him. The reference is sort of an, an innumerable amount. So it's, it's a, a large number. He was going to send them in the 2,000 swine, so it could be an indication of at least 2,000 demons. It could be just several, and then they lead the swine down the hill. But in any case, it's more than one, and probably a very large number. There are a lot of poorly written books on spiritual warfare and demons and the demonic. As a young Christian, years ago, I read some of those. Some thoughts first before we go on. Jesus in this passage is not asking for the demon's name. From the mistreatment of this verse and from the incorrect study, I think, and the parallel texts of Matthew and Mark, some have concluded that we're supposed to ask demons their name. Jesus, who was confronted by the Jews in John chapter 8, says this in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources because he is a liar and the father of it. Why would you ask a demon his name? Why would you believe him if he told you? How would you know? He, it, they will lie. And like I said, I've read stories, I've heard stories, I've read books. There's lots of websites about spiritual warfare. You have to find out the demon's name before you can cast it out. And the name will be sometimes something like the demon of lust or the demon of drunkenness. There's no place in Scripture where a demon is limited by its title or its name in debauchery. You, you cast the demon of drunkenness out of a man, or the demon of drunkenness comes into a man, but you've got to wait for the demon of fornication to get in him before he can actually commit lewd sex acts. Okay, that, that is not how that works. If lust is a demon, then probably every man I know is possessed. Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 5, we'll just quickly read through this short passage. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. If you underline, if you like to underline, you can underline that, the works of the flesh. Don't underline in the Bibles you just borrowed from us tonight. I, I don't care, actually, you can if you want to. Take it home with you. The works of the flesh, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, these are all from demons. Just as I told you in times past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are works of the flesh. 
you don't need a demon's help. Now, a demon might help you, but you don't need a demon's help. They come naturally in our fallen state. They're in your body, in your mind already. When we first came here from California back in 1982, wow, that was a long time ago, we started a Bible study that grew into this church. And um, it was, boy, Mike, you're, yeah, he's back there. Years ago, he, oh, he used to teach. Somewhere in the early years, I was given a book by a member of this study, a person who I knew to be fairly solid. She said, this book will help you in spiritual warfare. The book starts off with this gentleman describing an encounter with a possessed person. He's casting the demon out, and he says the demon described to him how to pray for protection against demons, how to pray for a hedge of protection, how to speak to the demon, the words to use, the words to say, and then went on to describe the details. Demonic warfare in great detail. This Christian book on spiritual warfare was channeled by a demon through an unbeliever. Why would you read it? Do you really think a demon is going to tell you how to defeat demons? Why would you? If you're ever in a place where you're having a conversation with a demon, just stop. Nothing good will come out of that. Better yet, don't start. I gave the book back with a long conversation. We parted. I mean, we were friends to this day, but it was an interesting conversation. John, speaking on the topic of spiritual warfare, says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, here speaking of evil spirits, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you're a Christian, Jesus is living in you, and he is greater than any demon. He created them. Demons have no power over because Jesus lives in you. If you're a believer tonight, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the payment for your judgment, your debt is paid. This punishment has already been met by Jesus. The forgiveness is guaranteed and Jesus is living in you. Some people speak as though Jesus has a sort of timeshare arranged where you can be a Christian and have a demon living in the same, the same temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 tells us we are the temple of the living God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, speaking of being unequally yoked, says, What fellowship does light have with darkness, or Christ with Satan? Why would Jesus allow a demon to bunk up with him in your body? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves as whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ, Jesus Christ, is in you? Romans 8, verse 8, So then... Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, and the Spirit has, is life because of righteousness. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, For I, 
through the law, die to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, from the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Jesus lives in you. He has all authority. He has no fellowship with Satan. And he lives in you. And he will not share his house with demons. Verse 31, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss, the abuso. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, the bottomless pit. They begged. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice they recognize immediately his authority. There's no challenge. They're begging him, pleading with him, please. There's no battle here. Jesus just has to command them, and they have to go. Verse 32, now a herd of swine was feeding there on the mountain, and so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Interesting that the demons will take a man or an animal, and if they get into a man, they'll make him into an animal. Even the pigs would rather be dead than possessed. They committed suicide. (laughs) Sorry, I only have about one joke a year. That was probably it. And you laughed. Good. Now those, there are some who criticize Jesus for being inhumane and uncaring about the animals. And I think it should be said that cruelty to animals is forbidden. I think that's part of the confusion about the kosher laws, the type of animal mercy. You know, don't boil a baby in its, or a cow in its mother's milk. But God did permit the eating of meat and the sacrifice of animals. But there is a great visual representation here for the spectators. The demons leaving the man and the pigs running wild straight off a cliff. But more to the point, it is believed that the herd of swine was being raised by Jews in the Holy Land. That is forbidden. So Jesus deals with the sin and the demons at the same time. Sort of a twofer. But I think that is a distraction. The focus of the passage is clearly on Jesus' authority over the demonic world and the transformation of this man. Verse 34, when those who fed them, speaking here of the keepers of the swine, saw, that, uh, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. They fled. They, they ran away. Then they, speaking of the city dwellers, went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus. In Matthew's account, it says the whole city came out. This got their attention. They may have lost their livelihood. I couldn't find specifically, but the indication I get here is that they're not real happy. They're not excited to see Jesus. They're here to see what happened. More of a, how could you do this? And they found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting 
at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I cannot think of a better description of a saved person, a whole person, finally whole, a person in the right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a good place to be. You're more likely to find a whole person in their right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus than a lot of other places, though the world may not see that. The transformation is complete. Some kind of miracle has happened, and their reaction was not unlike the disciples. Remember, when Jesus commanded the storm to cease, they were afraid. That that still amazes me. I I struggle with trying to add that into this message because their reaction still blows me away. They've been with Jesus for a couple of years now, and he calms the sea, and their reaction is, who can this be? You've been with him for two years. He changed? The awesome power over the forces of nature, and now over the spiritual realm. The next miracle Jesus is going to perform after this is raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Three miracles in a row showing his power and his authority over the earth, the natural forces, the spiritual realm, and even over the dead. Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the next verse says, they rejoice seeing the demon-possessed man in his right mind, and they all gave Jesus praise and honor, and they all get saved. (laughs) Sorry. I took some artistic liberty there. He's performed these tremendous miracles, and they all believe. Nope. They're so excited for this man whose life was destroyed, he's now restored, and they marvel and worship God. Sorry. And they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he, who had been demon-possessed, was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region, the Gadarenes, this huge gathered crowd, the whole city, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Jesus makes this broken man whole. He helps the man who was beyond help. None of them could do anything for this man. They couldn't restrain him. They couldn't chain him. And the people reject him for it. When people have an encounter with the living God, it is a deeply humbling experience. Isaiah, Peter, John, all attest to falling down as dead when they face the Lord. I hear people say sometimes, when I see the Lord, I have some questions for him. And I think, I'm going to stand back a little bit. (laughs) Depart from me. I am a man of unclean lips. But Jesus, giving the illustration of the stone rejected by the builders, he said, those who fall on him will be saved, and those on whom the stone falls will be crushed. Only two reactions. You either fall on him or he falls on you. You can react in humility or you can act in fear. Love or judgment. 
We will all face Jesus one way or the other. We will face him in love or in fearful judgment. And it says, he got into the boat and returned. This is one of the saddest scriptures I can think of. Go away, Jesus. Okay. He's a gentleman. He honors your request. I don't want to have anything to do with you, Jesus. Okay. Jesus does not reject them. They reject him. People go to hell not because Jesus rejects them, but because they reject him. Jesus grants their request. Jesus honors their decision. Verse 38, now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that they might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Go to your house, return to your parents, return to your wife, return to your children. Don't run away. Go back to them. Tell them your amazing story. Now, as we sort of make our first pass at a landing here, there are three prayers in this passage, and this has struck me, I think, the first time I noticed this. It's always bothered me. There are three prayers. The demons beg. They implore Jesus not to be cast into the abuso, and he grants their request. People of the city beg Jesus to leave. He grants their request. The man healed, probably now a believer. I certainly know, or I think I would be. He wants to follow him. He asks to go along with him, and Jesus says no. Three prayers, and the believer is the one whose prayer is not answered. Interesting. Jesus says, no, I have other plans for you. Imagine him as he goes back to his former life. He sees his mother, his father, or his wife and his kids. Now he's in his right mind, he's restored, he's whole. Imagine that testimony. Imagine how powerful that would be. Well, what can we learn from this? First, getting a request from the Lord granted is not a measure of your spirituality. The two that got their request answered, both were clearly not spiritual at all. Demons and the rejecting population both get theirs requested and their requests answered. But the guy who looks to us at least like he deserves a request to be granted, and that's the one I would have answered, his is denied. And my guess and my experience has been that a lot of my requests have gone this way. Lord, I want. Lord, I'd really like. And the answer is no. I have other plans for you. I want to say I have better plans for you, but for me, sometimes I feel like, from my perspective, it doesn't look better. From the Lord's perspective, I'm sure it is better. That's the truth. But from my perspective, I'm thinking, wow, you know, driving a Lamborghini is certainly a lot better than driving a Honda, you know. Kidding. I've never paid for a Lamborghini. It would have been another car. But 
the man formerly known as the demoniac, the crazy naked guy who is super strong, now in his right mind, is doing the work of a missionary. He's faithful to share a story of his changed life. I was raised an intellectual. I like to argue. Those of you who know me, you, you don't, yeah, you know me. I, I love apologetics. Usually that stems from my love of arguing and, you know, that goes somewhere else. And I think there's a place in Scripture uh, and there's a place in the Christian's life for logic and for apologetics and all that stuff. I, I don't want to deny that. But I can't think of a place in Scripture where there's a theological argument that wins souls. There's a place for spiritual discussions. There's a place for apologetics. And I think we, that's our job that we all have to do. But most often I find people responding to acts of love and compassion displayed through the life of Jesus. Even often in spite of his disciples, in spite of those who would call themselves believers or followers. And we all have a testimony. Your theology must be good. It's good to know your apologetics. It's good to know who God is and understand the Trinity from the perspective of Scripture and all of those things. But it's your testimony, your life in front of others, that is going to be the most powerful thing you have to offer them. We have a testimony, and we need to share it. So go share it. We'll close there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for blessing us, for being with us, not leaving us alone, giving us your Holy Spirit to live in us. We thank you that you have, we have this word that you've given us to correct us, to, to teach us, to instruct us that we might be complete that we might be ready and complete for every good work. And I I pray, Lord, if there is anyone in the room here tonight who doesn't know you, that they would understand, maybe for the first time in their life, this exchange that you offer them. Their poor, less-than-perfect life, their sin, their destiny hell, which you eagerly exchange with them, and all they have to do is ask. And then you put us all in a right mind, and you draw us to the feet of Jesus. And I pray that if anyone here tonight doesn't know you, that they would make that exchange, that they would give their life to you tonight. And for those of us who know you, Lord, please help us to see the people around us, the people we encounter as individuals, someone you love, someone you care so much for that you died for. And help us to know that when we pray and you say no, it's because you have something else for us. So we ask all this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.